0: Oftentimes we blame parents and we blame, like, we're always pointing the fingers, right? And we we are quick to blame the victim without really critiquing the system in which the educational system has been founded on. And it was founded on a system of white supremacy.
1: Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question why do Black Educators Matter?
0: Thanks for having me. My name is Jillian Lene Carew. I currently serve as an instructional coach. I am a former teacher and school leader, principal. And why Black educators matter, I think there's tons of research to support the importance of Black educators, not just for children of color, but for non-children of color as well. And so I think when young people see people who look like them in roles such as education, you know, and all the many other roles that comes from our brilliance and our excellence to showcase how intelligent and smart we are, I think it makes a huge impact. So we matter because our Black kids can be what they don't see.
1: Now, where are you from, Miss Carew?
0: I'm from the south side of Chicago. I grew up in Algyle Gardens, far south. So yeah, just, I love this city.
1: Do you remember your K through 8 experience growing up on the south side?
0: I definitely do.
1: Tell us about it. Did you, like, tell us about your school?
0: Yeah, and so it definitely leads into why I became an educator. So I kind of bounced around a little bit from kindergarten to third grade, and my mom had ended up phoning in a friend. She had started while I was in second grade trying to get me into Beasley Academic Center. And so this favor came through in the fourth grade, and so I started going to Beasley. And stayed there from fourth through eighth. And that was kind of like my home elementary experience. That's also what propelled me into education. Because even in fourth grade, I was just like, I don't understand, like, why if my mom wants me to go to this school, why can't I go? Right? Like, I didn't know what that was about. But I had some funny feelings of like, "Ah, this seems a little bit risky and shaky so but yeah so i I remember going to beasley loved beasley i still keep in touch with many of the folks that i met there you know beasley bees we stick together
1: beasley bees are a very proud people because my co-founder brooke is a beasley bee (laughs) like y'all know it's she? like i went that person was in kindergarten with me i'm like how do you know that Mm -hmm. y'all are so proud so you graduated from beasley and where'd you go for high school what was that like
0: yeah, I went to Morgan Park, which I'm also very proud of, Woo-hoo. right? And Morgan Park Mustangs, we really stick together. And so I've been blessed to be at two schools that were really not just strong in terms of academics, but also in terms of school spirit. And so I had an awesome high school experience. I and mean, I'll just say briefly, that's part two of why I chose to go into education, because my mom had to lie to say that I was living with my aunt in order for me to get into Morgan Park. You know, growing up in the gardens, Finger was my neighborhood high school, Finger or Carver. And so, again, her having to lie for me to go to another school, I'm just like, this is a lie. Like, what is this about? And so as I got older, I started to dig a little bit deeper around that. But, yeah, Beasley and Morgan Park, hands down, molded me into the person I am today and the folks that were there. It was an amazing
1: experience. I understand that Morgan Park experience. So we went to Morgan Park together and graduated in the same class, 2003. We are an amazing class. We really are. Like, no, (laughs) no shade to nobody else. But my sister, who was 2004, although I was a student, my mom had to use a different address so that my sister could go to Morgan Park. So, yeah. So it also was like, why is it that parents have to lie in order for a child to attend a school? But then even within the school, there were different programs. What type of demographics were in your classes? Like what were your teacher makeup and even your classmates in high school?
0: Yeah. And so I was in the, the very regular track. Like I wasn't in IB or the whatever the different, different types of programs. I literally got in by the skin of my teeth. But I remember it being diverse. I remember there being more Black students than non-Black students. But I also like... That was the first time where I really was just like, okay, there are like other people in this world and like, they're cool. I can name white folks that I met in Morgan Park. I'm like, okay, like this is great. But in terms of teacher makeup, honestly, like I remember having a balance. Like I had my first male black teacher was in ninth grade, Mr. Curry in Morgan Park. I also remember my ninth grade math teacher was a black woman. I had Spanish with a Latin Latinx woman, but then I had, you know, white teachers as well so I actually have been blessed because I know there are some people who are like I I never had a black teacher and, and that just hasn't been my experience
1: so then you had this very strong Beasley B family for elementary school you had your Morgan Park family for high school when you started college where did you go and what led you to really begin your career in education when you went to school did you go declared as an education major
0: yeah, no, I didn't. So I went to U of I. So I applied to one school, got into one school by the grace of God, which was U of I. Again, the strongest institution that I, and I'm not saying that, I mean, I don't know because I've never been to other schools, but I will say that the camaraderie we felt at not just Beasley and Morgan Park, but U of I, and it's, the, it's the crazy how connected it all is, because I feel like so many of us went to all three of the schools. But anyway, I did not go to be an education major. I was actually a math major initially. I had hopes and dreams of being an actuarial scientist because a family member of mine owned a state farm agency and he's like oh you can make you know 60 grand coming straight out of college and I'm like okay sign me up. So I was a math major initially and then I got to junior year when Teach for America came on campus with free food at the student union and I went to get the free food and I told them I'm like listen I you know they like well just apply if you don't want to accept it you don't have to. I applied, got accepted. Next thing I knew, I was teaching in Las Vegas. So, yeah, that's kind of how it
1: happened. (laughs) I love that story. And I also love that trajectory. But two quick things. Number one, shout out for you even going to Teach for America as a former recruiter and even understanding how some of those partnership programs work. That's a very rigorous program with a very strenuous application process. And you were chosen So, for you to say, like, how your mom had to call in these favors, and how even in Morgan Park, you were in the very regular track, there's clearly nothing regular about you.
0: Aw, thank you. Legit,
1: like, you were chosen. Also, when did you fall in love with math? How does a black girl from the south side of Chicago fall in love with math?
0: And you know what's so crazy? I. I really can point back to being at Beasley, and I had a teacher named Mr. Mr. Adamac. He was a, a gay white man, comfortable in his skin, but he just was so. Like clear, concise and pristine in his teaching, in his dress, in his style. He was just gracious. He was all these things. And I was just like, man, like this is super dope. But he was, he taught us all these things about being meticulous, right? Like being super precise. And it just stuck with me. Like he made me really believe that I could do math and do it really well. And so I would say him, like, that's the first onset of what I thought about, like, a love of math as it relates to schooling. But I think on the flip side of that, I've always loved money, right? And my family grew up in a poverty-stricken area. We knew what it meant to struggle. We were poor. And if nothing else, I was going to learn how to count some coins and budget. So (laughs) that is the other piece that I think drove kind of like my love of numbers and math was just like, no, I need to know money. I need to know it really well. And yeah, so that's kind of how it happened.
1: So you went from Chicago down to ILL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you end up in Vegas. So what was that experience like for you as an educator starting your career in Las Vegas?
0: So my mom and I packed up everything I owned in my little Ford Escape truck and we drove 24 hours from Chicago to Las Vegas. And the moment I got there, I cried. I had never really been that far away from home, right? Growing up in the garden. Some people never really went past Roseland, right? But I was blessed to have had a different experience. But they get away from my family. This is like my first home. Like I had my own apartment. Like I had bills all of a sudden. I'm just like, and was getting my master's degree at the same time. So it was a very scary time for me. But I think really thrusted me into my independence and like really was like, okay, Jillian, it's time to grow up and become a woman. Like that's really what it was. And I'm grateful now looking back, although I cried a lot while I was there for the two years, I spent every penny I had coming, flying back home, you know, once a month. But it really was what I needed to get away to understand like the importance of like me being on my own. Right. That said, as an educator, it blew my mind, Danielle. Like, I taught third grade ELL students and a lot of my babies were from Mexico. It was very transient. So like people would be there for two months, leave, never come back or leave for three months, come back. Like it was, it was so much in and out. But when I tell you the progress I saw from my babies who couldn't speak English, didn't understand English, but by the end of the year was growing two, three, four, five years, like in literacy, I just was like, yo, like if, if, if these babies can do it i know the babies in chicago can and so that really kind of solidified because you know two, EFA is a two-year program so i'm like okay i'm gonna go down there for two years see what it's about whatever but when i saw what was possible with my ell students in vegas i was like yeah no i gotta go back to chicago and do this
1: so how long have you been in the classroom and beyond all of your time in education
0: <sighs> so i started teaching in two 2007 oh my goodness why are you making me do this math because <laughs> you love it so that's about 13 years in education I taught seven years before I went into leadership but yeah seven years in the classroom um, I went from third grade ELL to ninth grade math and 11th grade math yeah so seven years in the classroom 13 years total in education that's crazy <laughs>
1: So reflecting on your classroom days, did you ever find that you had a shared sense of identity and connectedness between you and your Black students? And if so, how did you identify that?
0: Yeah, I don't, it's really weird. I don't know. I just know that very early in my career, kids like would gravitate towards me. And I think a large part of it had to do with me looking very young. Like I've always had a useful kind of like I care about myself not just in my face but also in like how I dress and you know when they see the teacher wearing Jordans or you know coming to the basketball game they like oh she cool you know so I think really I was just being me and being unapologetic about how I showed up as a black woman in that space in in like the classroom like I you know would like say certain things that they would identify culturally with, right? Like, so I might say like a saying that I know that all the kids say that's not technically, um, that's not technically appropriate English, but I know how to connect with them, right? So I would speak Ebonics here and there. I would like tell some jokes. And this is just all of what I do outside of my life as a teacher. And so I think because I was authentic in my role as a teacher, that allowed them to kind of connect with
1: what has been the most impactful moment you've had as an educator thus far?
0: Ooh. So I'll say two, because I think teaching is so dope of a profession that you got to have the highs with the lows. I'll say my high was, this was well after I finished teaching one of my students when he found out that he had been diagnosed with HIV, I was his first phone call. And that blew my whole wig back. I was just like, yo, like, first of all, thank you for trusting me to like, even tell me, right? That That's huge, right? And then to, to know that I would be a person that could walk him through like the plan of talking to his family and getting his medication and doing all that was like, that was like, this is what I do this for. It has nothing to do with what job you have or you know, how, how much money and scholarships you you you've received is like, no, this is it. So that was the high. I would say the low would definitely be the killing of Marcel Pearson. He was also another boy in my advisory. And a star basketball player, like, just graduated from high school, had a whole lot of troubles throughout his life, but really made it past the finish line. I purchased my house for him um, so that he could have a place to stay until so he was, you know, ready to go off to college and he got killed um, two days shy of me taking him to his college orientation. And that shook my whole world. Right. Because I have the one end of like the highs of what I said about the other student. And then I have the lows of like, man, why am I doing this? If, if this is what it's going to end up being, right? It's like, he worked so hard. We worked so hard to get him here now. But, so I would say those have been, that's the high and the low, but the most prominent events in my career.
1: My goodness. Thank you for sharing those because, I mean, that was incredibly high and incredibly low. How did you, as an educator, how did you learn to manage those highs and those lows?
0: Really, I would say my faith. Like, I question God a lot about, like, is this the right thing? Should I be doing this? How do I know? Um, but then I also think holding on to those really high highs helped me through the really low lows, right? Because I'm like, dang, I found myself on the floor crying face down like, God, was up? And then I could have, like, randomly kids send me two or three messages on facebook like you made such a you know strong impact in my life and like students still rich, reach out to me today right and I, and it was like that then they would come to me when they needed support or needed love and compassion and so those sorts of small moments are what kind of got me through um but i would say faith for sure
1: mm, amen All right. So now thinking about all of the experiences that you've had with your own K through college education, thinking about your mother's experience as a parent with giving you access to the best educational options that she had, and then thinking about your own students that you have supported in families through your work as a classroom teacher and then as a school leader. I have a question for you. What is the state of education in Black America and how did we get here?
0: Yeah, it's a state of emergency. And it's been a state of emergency. The late Julian Bond said that violence is young Black children going to school for 12 years and receiving six years' worth of education. And we talk about gun violence, we talk about all this other stuff happening. But we don't talk enough about the harm that has been done to people of color in the educational system for far too long. Julian Bond has been deceased now, may God rest his soul, since 2015. So when he said that, I'm not sure. But he was an activist during the the Civil Rights Movement. He helped co-found the SNCC committee and all of that. So he's been doing this for quite some time. So I think that just speaks to how long it's been a state of emergency right? We didn't just get here. I think there's a lot of things that led to it. I think oftentimes we blame parents and we blame, like we're always pointing the fingers, right? And we we are quick to blame the victim without really critiquing the system in which the educational system has been founded on. And it was founded on a system of white supremacy, right? And it was never designed for us, right? So to blame victims, to point fingers at anybody except the system, is problematic, right? And so I think that we really need to go back and think. And so much has changed. Everything evolves. The educational system is the only thing that has yet to evolve. We know that when education first began, what the, the purpose of it was, why it needed to be all these hours in this classroom, why it was set up like a factory style, all these different things, right? That was then. The problem has been that we have not evolved and, and, and we need to evolve not just for the young people that we, we we serve today which is very different from who we were as young people which was very different from who our parents were as young people right so trying to meet the needs of those folks that we're serving but just to just to do what's right. Equity is a is a huge thing and I know it's become like this buzzword but in order for us to really 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 Achieve true equity in this country, we have to really start with education and critique the system. So, yeah, that's that's it.
1: This is just one of many stories, and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at BlackEducators Matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon now. Let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. You spoke about it being a state of emergency and said that we need to address the harm that has been done. Can you kind of break down the strategic and systemic and intentional? What harm have you seen?
0: Baby, I can tell you not just the harm I've seen, I can tell you the harm I've done. And that is what is most troubling and problematic for me because you you pick me a young black girl from the south side who's eager to make sure that our community is winning in every sense, right? And you put me into a charter school that told me that in order for our kids to succeed, we had to be oppressive. We had to strip them of their creativity, of their rights, of, you know, their brilliance and control them in ways that we wanted them to comply with our directives and what we thought was best for them. And they like, listen, I had to do a lot of healing myself as a black educator when I came to turn with understanding that what I thought I was doing in love was really harming the babies that I said I loved, right? And every time I think about my experience, I think about DMX, flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, and I think about how I saw these babies sitting in front of me who I identified with, who I'm like, I just want you to have a way out, right? And I'm telling them things that are problematic, like leave the hood, go to college, do all this stuff, right, like, no like your hood has value, your hood has, you know, so much culture and so much brilliance there, right? It's just, it was just all of the things that I had been brainwashed to believe, not only about the students that I was serving, but really, ultimately, it was a reflection of what I had been brainwashed to believe about myself, and I was passing it on to them. And so I've seen all sorts of harm, you know, even as a school leader, having to, you know, come into a building and see my kids lined up with their hands behind their back, following You know, tracking ahead in front of them on this blue line like it's prison. You can't look at the walls. You can't. It's like silent lunch. What are we talking about? Silent lunch. Like, it's just been so much. Right. And I think that the truth is, I I believe I want to believe in my heart of hearts that most people have good intentions and they really do believe that doing these things will create a sense of urgency because our kids are so far behind if they need to catch up when really they're just so ignorant to the fact that black people don't need to catch up we're the standard we are excellence right like this is we're the standard like there's no catching up to royalty there's but 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 people don't know that because we've been brainwashed to think that we've always been less than we've always lacked we've also we've always come from this deficit perspective and so yeah, I, I, I can't tell you about, I could tell you about the harm I've seen, but I I thought it was more impactful to tell you about the harm I've done. And so since I've been in that space as a teacher, I have had town halls with my kids. I have called them up on the phone if I still have their phone numbers. I have had to apologize more times than not. And the truth is, I am going to start a donation campaign very soon to try to get therapy services for the kids in which I harmed because, like, hearing some of their stories and seeing their posts on Facebook and they talk about how, you know, in high school they felt so marginalized and so, you know, oppressed. And it's like, we did that. I did that. So now I have to have some sort of sense of responsibility to help undo or repair the harm that we've created.
1: Oh, you just said a whole word. I think even as we started this conversation and we shared how, the ecosystem of the education that we've received is so interconnected. I think there that a lot of us, especially working in the space all kind of woke up around the same time because we believed it. Mm -hmm. We believed it. (laughs) We thought that if we did these things, it would lead to X. We did not know about the moving targets. We did not know about all of the layers involved. So it It is very true that people in this space, even as Black educators, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions.
0: Better say it.
1: So there, there has definitely been stuff that I have seen that I'm like, I know we are doing this baby girl a disservice. I know this. And I also have seen situations where it's like, you would never let this happen for your child.
0: Absolutely not.
1: So, yeah, I think I think it is a lot of unlearning that has to happen. But in a lot of the conversations I've been having with educators, they talk about how you can't. And I don't want to mess up the phrase, but you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools.
0: That's it. We can't. Yeah, we keep trying to uh, listen. Ain't no S.O.S. coming. We got to save ourselves, right? Like we can't keep putting ourselves in their system, a system that wasn't designed for us, that was designed to keep them in positions of power and think that something's going to change. That's exactly it. Whoever said that, they hit that right on the head. That's it.
1: So you kind of mentioned some of your own experiences when you were an educator, but now you are an instructional coach and you've seen more. Things have evolved. Mm -hmm. Would you say now, are schools designed for children of color?
0: Definitely not. And I think there are a lot of organizations and schools, especially in the wake of the current violence that has happened, that are trying to right the ship, right? I think the problem is that you can't reform garbage. When you reform garbage, you get shinier garbage, Really what and, and, and I, I can't say that I have the complete answer to how what needs to happen but what I can tell you matter of factly is that we've got to start all the way over. When you are trying to reform in a current system that, that is no, in no way intended for everyone to be successful and thrive, then there's there's no amount of reform that can change that. And so to your answer your question, schools still are not built for black children. There are organizations such as the one that I'm working for. My primary responsibility is making sure that black and brown children have access to an equitable education in high schools across the city, right? So we're trying to do that. But mind you, that's our mission. But we're trying to do that in the construct of the public school system that wasn't designed for it. So it's like we have this effort and people understand the importance of it. And we're working toward that. I'm just not convinced or sold that any amount of reform or or outside organization organizations is going to fix a system that currently is still built on the foundations in which it it was conceived, right? So they're not built for us. There are lots of efforts working toward making it a better experience, but better does not equal good. And it also doesn't, it also has, it also is not indicative of what our kids deserve. That's just the bottom line.
1: How have you grown since you began your career?
0: I've grown so much. I can think back to, you know, again, it goes back to the conditioning right around like assimilate, do what you need to do to learn the system so you can navigate it and get to these tables. Right. And I did all this stuff. I kept my mouth closed even when I felt like things weren't right. And I, you know, showed up in professional dress, even though I thought it was so stupid that a teacher would have to wear church shoes to go work with kids. Right. All these things, just go, do it. And then once you do it, you'll get to these tables and people listen to you and you get to make the decisions. And so I got to the tables and people still didn't listen to me. And I'm like, wait, so I did all this stuff that I didn't want to do, thinking that it was going to give me access, when really I still don't have no kind of power. Right? And so what I learned through all of that was that I just need to show up and be me authentically. It just reminds me of this, like, respectability politics, this whole game of, like, if you be nice and say the right things and do all this stuff, then people will accept you and you'll go far. Like, bump that. People have been being nice and doing everything they're supposed to do and still have not been making it. So guess what? I'm going to show up comfortably, however that means, in my Jordans with my smart mouth rolling my neck, especially when it comes to what black and brown kids need and deserve. I'm unapologetic about that. And guess what? I still have equal access to tables, right? I still have I still don't have the power, right? The full power that I need, but I have learned over time that it's time to stop teaching our kids to conform and to teach them to resist. Like this this structure, I don't care how kind and respectful people will deem them to be, all I gotta say is that they don't really care about us. <laughs> so like show up. That's what I've learned. Stop, stop, you know, teaching folks to assimilate, give our kids the tools necessary to advocate, to use their agency, um, because it's time to resist and build our own systems.
1: What challenges have you grown through?
0: So with what I just said, right, I've also grown to understand that while I can show up authentically, that doesn't necessarily mean, that I need to say everything that comes to my mind and how I want to say it, right? I think authenticity sometimes get conflated with like being tactless, like no, like go into spaces, say what's on your heart, speak truth to power and you don't have to cuss them out while you're doing it. You don't have to, you know, like there's, there's a balance in which you can achieve such that you don't feel like you are being inauthentic, but also in a way that will, help you to get across the point that you're trying to make and actually get the the, the the momentum and the buy-in that you need. And so I've learned that there's a way to be authentic and effective.
1: I had to work through that too in my own just professional experience. I remember I prayed that I would learn how to communicate so that my message would be received and would not get lost in the delivery Mm -hmm. Because I've been misunderstood so many times and I'm like, how did, how did this situation end up like this? And it's like, you know, people make assumptions about you with your intention and your tone, especially when you speaking from the heart and when you speak your truth to power and when you're showing up authentically. That, that rubs people the wrong way. But I understand that. And I also have had to work on that. And I think as black women who try to use their voice, that but that that goes back to that, like, respectability politics and having to mind our tone and all that kind of stuff. Like, how am I supposed to be able to use my voice when I can't even use my voice?
0: Right. Oppressive. Yeah,
1: it definitely. What advice do you have for first year educators?
0: My advice would be to use your voice. I think oftentimes, if, if I'm speaking for myself, and this is sometimes still true, but as a first year teacher, first year principal, now first year at this new organization I'm at, I'm always kind of like, do I know enough to speak up, right? There's trying, you trying to balance this, this role of humility. You know, like you just got here, you don't know the school well enough, you don't know the organization well enough, but your spirit, your soul just tells you like, no, something is tugging on your heart and you just know you need to say it, that it's not right and you wanna speak up, but you just don't feel like you have the experience to do so, do it afraid. Like I I learned that, you know, there's no years of experience with some of the, the schools I worked at and tables that I've been sitting at, there's no amount of years of experience that will equate to my life's experience and being where I've been and so I just just don't don't hold back like again there's a way to do it respectfully and effectively but don't ever second guess your gut um due to you know feeling like you don't have the experience or enough knowledge to to share like our kids are dependent on it and so every time you're in that staff meeting you know, find a way to, to circle back if it's, you know, one on one with the school leader, if it's in the meeting, you know, challenging deficit perspectives about our kids, about, you know, our parents and like our community. Like, say it like you have the right and the experiences and, and don't let it go unchecked.
1: Hmm. You mentioned having to deal with lots of ups and downs and how your faith brings you through. But what does self-care look like for Miss Carew?
0: It looks like buying every pair of Jordans that come out. Um, No, seriously. Like, I'm a sneakerhead, and they bring me joy every time I open up a new box and I smell the gym shoe glue. It just gives me life, right? I will say, though, on the serious side, that was serious too, but yoga has been so good for me. That, coupled with therapy and adult coloring, I would say those three things have been, like, my trifecta, like, I'll pull out that adult coloring book and listen to some mindful music to get my mind off of things so quickly. Yoga, especially when it's nice outside along the lake, is just beautiful. And, and, you know, all of our people, we need therapy, like we just do. And so that, that has been helpful to know that I have somebody consistently that can help me talk through things as they come up, both, at, you know, personally and professionally, has really helped me to care for myself over the years.
1: Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your journey. For those who don't know, Jillian and I have been in each other's ecosystem since freshman year at Morgan Park. We went to the same high school, graduated the same year. We went to the same college, graduated the same year. And then we even spent some time working at the same organization. Where I can attest to how meticulous you are, because when I was trying to support on some of the teacher engagement stuff, and you shared your document with me about how you were tracking your own data. It was so incredibly different than how I was tracking data. So that's why I always say that it's so important to have a teacher perspective or someone who has done the work before anybody else tries to talk about what should happen with teachers or in the classroom. So it's been such a pleasure really getting to learn your experience And before we go into the final Thank a Black Teacher, I want to shout out your math teacher from Beasley, who you said that was so incredibly authentic and it helped you fall in love with math. And it sounds like you took that same spirit of authenticity to connect with your kids. I did. I didn't even make
0: that connection. But yeah, no,
1: that's real. Yeah. So like shout out to him because it's about all educators like anybody who is doing the work this is an incredible sacrifice so I just wanted to make sure like thank you good sir thank you now are there any black educators that you would like to thank
0: yes and I have one from each part of my educational journey at Beasley I had a science teacher named Miss Lake Clarissa E. Lake She taught us not just about science, but about life skills, like down to, like, I remember her having conversations with us about how to properly wash ourselves, like hygiene, like she cared. And so Miss Lake is my heart. Like, I love her. That was at the elementary level. At the high school level, Mr. Curry for sure. First black male teacher, also taught all of us to form excuses. It never left me. Incredible impact on my life. Like, he really... He just basically had the audacity to tell me I was smart and I was going to be successful. And I was like, okay, I think I believe you. So I appreciate him for that. And then at the college level, it would have to be Dr. Patterson, Dr. P, William Patterson. I took a course in undergrad called Cream, Cash everything around me. And it was all about hip hop. And I just didn't know at the time that learning could really be fun. And he just showed me that. And so I carried that into my educational pursuits as a teacher and was like okay we can learn some stuff and it could be like relevant and, and fun and so those are the three black teachers that I gotta accredit everything that I am everything I've become in addition to my family too because they they really really stood in the gap and were my village
1: yeah yes 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 where can people connect with you
0: So you can connect with me on Facebook. My name is Jillian Lene. My business page is also Energy Unlimited, I-N-N-E-R, capital G, Unlimited without the vowels, U-N-L-M-T-D, and that's on both social medias, platforms, that's Facebook and Instagram. So my business pages are there, and then on Instagram, I'm sent to you from heaven, but if you search Jillian Linnae, you can find me there as well.
1: Tell us about Energy Unlimited.
0: Yeah. So I started a consultant firm. I'm a certified life coach. And so really what I'm trying to do is like an advocate for both parents and youth as a result of my time in education right like i have the educator lens but i also that also means i know the inner workings of how schools work and so i'm trying to use that experience to empower young people and their parents to really stand up for what they deserve in the educational system so i do that through certified life coaching but energy unlimited is like energy is a play on your actual energy but like energy capital g brings my my authenticity right if you are a gangster genius greatness whatever you consider your g to be it's already within you and so my goal is to help cultivate it and so i do workshops i do uh, coaching sessions individually with partners with families and i do educational consulting as well so that's where that came from
1: yes i get my energy from my energy shout out to lupe Thank you so much for sharing your story again. And everything that you've done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a Black teacher today.